Hello and welcome to Guiding Assets, the flagship investment podcast for CFA Institute. I'm Mike Wahlberg, and today I'm speaking with Simon Skinner, the head of the London-based global investment team of Orbis Investments. The reason I wanted to chat with Simon is, well, Orbis is doing a number of really interesting things in asset management, and it's a, really a unique firm itself. Majority owned by a philanthropic foundation, the $34 billion asset manager has taken the alignment of interest with their clients to new levels including charging performance fees, but then also effectively refunding them when their strategies are lagging over weeks or even days. Speaking to those fees is definitely on today's agenda, but we're also going to talk about some progressive things that Orbis is doing in primary research, as well as spending time and money creating structures to help their analysts make better decisions. Welcome to the show, Simon. Thanks very much for having me, Mike. Great to be here. And Simon, the first thing I'd like to cover is Orbis's approach to fundamental analysis. And specifically, I'm talking about the internal analytics work that you do that goes beyond, you know, just reading 10Ks and interviewing management. Can you talk a bit about the Investment Insights team? You know, how did it come to be and and what is the focus of the group? Sure. Very happy to. So our Investment Insights team was really created seven or eight years ago when we saw the expansion of availability of data. And we thought that this would be relevant in the future, but we weren't sure exactly how. And we were also aware that as public market investors, we were only ever exposed to a tiny sliver of the relevant information on an investment. And we were in a position of having to make you know, long-term fundamental investment decisions based on really quite small sets of data. And thought that over time, if we could supplement those with data we could create ourselves or we could collate from other sources, that could be quite powerful for our investment outcomes. And that experiment has kind of come to fruition. So the team has bedded down. We started to understand more about how we can use these types of data and how we can structure them into our process. And so as the teams become more established and we've grown the headcount, we've also expanded the types of data that we can consider and been able to work out how we can incorporate it into our process in a relatively successful way. And so I think it's important to differentiate between what we're trying to do and what we're not trying to do with this team. What we're not trying to do is is mine vast sets of data and look for signal about stock price movements. We're a relatively small and quite specialized investment firm that really goes after bottom-up contrarian opportunities. We're not going to compete and win at a, a big data, big com- computational power type game that the you know some of the, the large head funds or asset managers are, are going to ultimately win at. What we're seeking to do is to drive deeper and more accurate insights into the fundamentals of the businesses that we're considering. Uh, and that means looking in a very focused and specialized way into areas of data that can help supplement our understanding of that business and the medium-term intrinsic value we think is appropriate to assign to it. So what would be an example of, a, of an ask of the team? So, so for example, we might, if we were looking at a retailer, we would be interested to know the, the strength of the consumer proposition, how well it was resonating and how well it was stacking out versus its competitors in the relevant market. Now, we would be looking because we wanted to understand where that business might be in five years time, which would, you know, be, is it, is it serving com- consumers better a little bit each day? And what's the scope to increase the size of the, the retail store estate? So we would be looking at things like consumer surveys, uh, at pricing data, at web traffic in certain situations. And we might look at things like footfall, that kind of data. But instead of asking the question of what does the footfall tell us about where like for like sales or same store sales might land in the next quarter? What we're thinking about is, is this business getting stronger over time? And do we have conviction that in five years time, it's worth materially more than the price today? So although it may be the same types of data that other people are looking at, I think we're asking very different questions. Uh, And that gives me confidence that our competitive advantage isn't being eroded 
through looking at the same types of data as other people. It's really the same, it's the same difference we've you know, had 15 years ago when looking at fundamentals. We were looking at the same data, but asking different questions. And I think we're now just bringing more types of data into that analytical framework. The other thing which is, is interesting for us is it's, it's about consistency of analysis. And so often it's not the first snapshot of data that's most interesting. It's when we've been following a company or a business for several years, but on a regular cadence, we've been making the same piece of analysis. So it might be a consumer survey. And so we can start to understand the strength of the brand, the strength of its competitors, uh, looking at geographic expansion, whether it's progressing well or poorly. We can um, look at new stores versus existing stores and understand you know, how consumers are reacting to those and whether they're driving cannibalization. And what we're finding is it's driving a much richer, deeper understanding of the business. Uh, and I like to think about investments, I guess, as a, as a puzzle where, you know, when you look at a small piece of information, you've maybe got a third of the piece, those puzzle pieces in front of you and you're trying to see the overall picture. And through our, through our deeper analysis and, and these types of data, we're just putting incremental puzzle pieces on the board, helping us to form a clearer view of the future. So do you find that it can be an iterative process as well? I can imagine a scenario where you, you know, you, you ask a question and the data gives you something and, and maybe that prompts the analysts to, to think about it in a different way, because it, it seems like it's, it's all about the questions you ask, right? So I'm curious about how that process might look. Absolutely. So as I like to push the team on, the first cut of analysis usually throws up several so what questions. Um, where it doesn't really give you the answer, but it gives you a clue or a signpost as to where you should go looking for the rest of your answer. And so we might see something. So we look at various employee forums and boards. LinkedIn is one of them. And we might find that over the last couple of years, attrition has been higher in a certain business. Now, for a business that's going through restructuring and having to reskill its workforce, that might be a positive. Uh, and the next cut of the data might say, well, what do the profiles of the average person joining the business look like versus the existing employee base? Or what's their experience level or you know, that kind of thing? It could be an indication of things going wrong. So people being unhappy and engagement dropping. And then we might decide to do our own survey of employees of that business and ask them what they think of management, how engaged they're feeling. We then may engage in kind of expert calls and try and panel people from across the industry and try and get an external view into that business. And so really, it's just following the signposts and I guess trying to work out where the treasure is on the map and taking the little clues along the way. So I'm curious about the skill set of the folks who are doing this work for you. Who, who does this job? So it's really quite a variety of backgrounds. <laughs> when we started the team, there wasn't really an established industry in this area. There's much more so today. There's broadly two profiles of people in the team. So the first profile would be people we call business analysts. And these are people with a slightly technical background, but often the, the key characteristic they have is just very high levels of curiosity and tenacity. And so these are people who, with whom we will take a, a business and say, look, we're, we're really interested in this engineering business that's going through a restructuring. Can you help us build conviction that management have got the, the buy-in of the staff and that they're likely to be successful? Now, that's a very difficult thing to do from outside the business. And so what we need is people who are kind of highly curious and also able to be creative about the ways they might go about solving that kind of puzzle or giving us clues. And we're willing to kind of experiment and be wrong in the first instance, but then also to kind of follow the nose and ask those so what that I've just discussed. So that would be the, the business analyst profile. And they work very closely with our fundamental analysts working on these very specific deep dive questions. Supporting our business analysts would be people with a much deeper data background. So these would be data scientists and data engineers. And these are the people who are really distilling the vast amounts of data that's 
publicly available or we can procure and translating that into sensible insights. Now, we're not we're not seeking to mine the data and look for any kind of signal against a, a stock price, that kind of thing. We're trying to boil down to fundamental insights about quality of a business or the engagement with management. So we need people who are able to be quite pragmatic, but also be skilled with the technical tools they need to in order to to harness that data that's there. Let's turn to the decision analytics work that that Orvis does with its analysts. And I, I love, for one, I love talking about behavioral finance. And I'm sure many of our listeners have read a lot about the theory. And we've certainly, I mean, we've had some great guests on here on the show talking about it as well. But I feel like tangible examples of firms actually putting processes into place to apply those theories are, are really lacking. So I'm wondering if you could please tell us about what Orbis is doing in this space. Sure. So I think that the first point to make here is, I think Orbis might be uniquely placed in the foresight that the the senior people and managers in the firm had really from, from inception, but certainly over the last 25 years, in terms of the amount of data that we have recorded and captured on our investment teams and each of our investment professionals. So since at least 2000 and probably for several years before that, we've recorded the investment process of every stock that we've researched. So what's happened to it at each stage of our research process, who has then actioned that stock for clients, whether the, the trading behavior of that stock has been positive or negative, and obviously what the overall outcome has been. So that's an incredibly rich data set from which we're starting to understand our own behaviors, which I think is, is a fantastic advantage. The second point to make is we are very rigorous about driving individual accountability to our investment process. And that means that all of our analysts have a paper portfolio which is fairly sophisticated in the way it operates. So it accumulates and trades as we believe our strategies would in the, in the market. That, so that means you come with a pricing impact. It means you pay trading costs, et cetera, et cetera. That's a very useful tool, both in terms of allowing us to identify the most skilled investors in the firm, but also providing a feedback loop to analysts in terms of which of their positions are working, how they're working, and then providing statistics like hit rates and that kind of thing. So between these two data sets, we have huge amounts of data on how our analysts behave through the investment research process and what outcomes they drive through that process. And that allows us to go back and look and start to characterize those processes with the outcomes and see what insights we can draw. So we've had this team running now for several years. It's quite established. And as we collect information on individual analysts, we're then able to do deep dives on them and to provide very rich feedback about all the different ways in which they are conducting their research, about the outcomes they're generating from the different types of research that they're doing, and hopefully allow them to iterate and improve over time. So I think the difficulty with what we're doing, which is investing for the long term, is there's a big gap between your investment process, so your initial research process, when you often build most of your confidence in a thesis, and the outcome that you realize. It's gonna be at least years, if not maybe four to five years, and it's very difficult to remember clearly what you were doing at that point in time so that you can correct your, your shot. I guess the, uh, the analogy I like to use is kind of, it's like going to the driving range in the dark and you hit all your balls and then only at the end, you turn the lights on. <laughs> it's very difficult to understand how to improve your swing if you can't see where your balls are landing. And I think that's, you know, even just the time is a barrier to improvement, but we know humans are loaded with bias and so even if it was a shorter time period between the results and the process, I still think it would be very hard for people to correct themselves with appropriate feedback. So I think this, this team really operates in two ways. 
The first is actually analyzing our data and drawing out the relevant conclusions. And it can be really quite granular. And so an example from my own history is that when I have worked through an investment process in a timely fashion, as in I've prioritized that stock idea over everything else in my diary and got it done in a fairly, for us, brief time period, which might be you know less than a couple of months, those outcomes have been better for me. And so something about something in my process is more urgent, more excited, and I've driven to better outcomes there. And so I can create nudges for myself when I'm dragging my heels on research or things are taking longer than they might otherwise do. There might be a sign in that to me that maybe this is not, shouldn't be a top idea or I need to go back to the drawing board and think about some fresh ideas to work on. That's quite a, that's quite a nuanced thing to draw out somebody's history. But the other side of this team's work, I think is ultimately going to be more important, which is really this team is about changing behavior. It's about coaching people so that they're able to improve in the future. And we know that giving people feedback and getting them to change their behavior is incredibly difficult. And so there's a big, there's a big side of this, which is about building trust and confidence between the decision analytics team and the investment team, such that people don't feel threatened or defensive, that they're open to the feedback and that they're open as to the best mechanisms to changing their own behavior, which could be different for different people. Uh, and I think we're quite early on in that process. We've done, we've done a lot of the analysis and we, we've drawn out a lot of conclusions, but you know, really understanding how to best adapt our behaviors to those conclusions is, I think, going to be a work in progress for quite a while. Yeah, that, that was something I wanted to touch on with you, actually, Simon, is that I mean, obviously everyone wants to improve in theory, but in practice, I imagine egos could get in the way of applying this kind of work successfully. So how do you overcome resistance among analysts? So I would agree people have a positive mindset to improvement, but I would also observe that particularly as people become more senior, it becomes harder to change established habits, especially if someone is being moderately successful. It can often be quite difficult for them to make big changes to the process because they're worried about breaking something which is kind of working in the pursuit of something that could be truly great. I think one of the cultural things we need to reinforce is that this is not an assessment. This is not us critiquing people and saying, this is who you are, you cannot change, this is how we think about you forever. It's really important to us to reinforce a growth mindset and that this is a learning opportunity. And so one of the mechanisms we've put in place is that it's up to the analysts whether they share this feedback with their line managers so that it removes any connotations of assessment or them kind of being crystallized at that point. And we really want to emphasize that it's about learning and growth. I think we, are, we will learn as we go and find other mechanisms for this. I think the other thing which has been very promising from a kind of cultural perspective is we've started with some of the senior people in the firm doing this. And they've been open about sharing the conclusions from the work that's been done on their track records. I think if we can set a good example with the senior investors at the firm, other analysts and other people in the firm will feel much more comfortable to go through the process and speak about it openly and candidly with their colleagues. And ultimately, my, my aim for this team is that people start to learn from each other as well as themselves and really increase the, the rate of learning and the trajectory of improvement at the firm. Yeah, because I guess one of the takeaways from this would be, you know, how do you make better decisions yourself, but what role can you play in the team to help improve the overall outcomes, I imagine? I couldn't agree more, Mike. I think that's, that's spot on. I think there's two parts to that, though. There's not only is that how can you effectively do that, but it's how can you motivate people to do that? And so, you know, if you have a firm where people believe they are lone wolves and they succeed on their own and they live and die by the investment results that they create, then I think it's quite difficult for people to take the time out of their day and show the interest and the thoughts that's required to help their colleagues. 
if you can foster a genuine spirit of team camaraderie and an appreciation that we are we are much more than some of our parts if we can work effectively together then i think you get people into the right mindset to start to share with their colleagues and start to put the overall success of the firm ahead of their own individual efforts and i guess it helps as well that you're all eating your own cooking right so you you're, you're, you're invested in the strategies yourselves. You're paying the same fees and subject to those same things, right? So I think there's, there's two mechanisms which are very helpful. So the first would be exactly what you say, which is we are, you know, the staff are all, well, the majority of staff are invested in the strategies. They don't have complete transparency, but I, from what I understand, everybody's an investor in the strategies. And we, as you say, we're on the same terms and conditions as all of our clients. We think that's appropriate. We also have, you know, long-term incentive programs, which really align our senior investors to our clients. That can be both through investment in the funds, but then ultimately through the profitability of the firm. And, you know, the firm is made up of the investment contributions that many people make. And so if we're collectively stronger, we're, we're all in a better place. Okay. I promised we'd talk about fees. So let's spend a, a couple of minutes on that. Can, can you outline the model that Orbis uses and, and, and how you landed on this? Sure. So I'll outline the model first and then, and then walk through some of the background. So we operate what I believe to be a fairly unique structure in that we have a refundable fee structure. So if we outperform, we would charge our clients a performance fee. If we subsequently underperform, we would then refund the fees that were paid and they would go into effectively a reserve, which would be repaid to the client and help to cushion any underperformance that we we then registered. We base the firm on trying to be aligned with our clients and we want to make sure that we only prosper if our clients do well over the long term, end to end. And so we're always looking for ways to drive alignment. And this seemed like a very obvious one to us. If we look at the range of outcomes that a client can experience, if you believe in performance fees, there are some scenarios where the client may do poorly, but the firm does well if we were to outperform and then underperform. It's not easy to communicate this to the industry because it's so rare, but we think it's the right thing to do to maximize the alignment between our clients and the firm. And so we're committed to it. So Simon, do you think that the fee structure impacts Orbis's appetite for risk in managing those portfolios, you know, given that if a wider range of outcomes could cut revenues both ways? I, I don't. And I've been in the firm for 15 years. I've seen us invest through, you know, several market cycles, a range of environments through the global financial crisis, through the euro crisis, through COVID. When I look at the, I look at the approach that our investors take, and I look at the securities which come up for conversations and, the, and the, the conversations we have around those securities and whether they're appropriate for clients and whether they're the best things to own. There is a, an absolute focus on intrinsic value of those securities and how do we position ourselves to be best placed to deliver exceptional medium-term value for our clients and the funds. I guess there's a connotation of kind of swinging for the fences in your, in your question. And I think we know that to, to really deliver great value for clients, and to outperform over the medium term, we have to do something different. If we follow the herd, we're going to end up with the index return and none of us are satisfied with that. That means being in some situations which you know can feel very uncomfortable at the time. So either very deep value situations or very contrarian situations or where we've got a fundamentally different take on a certain stock or industry or part of the market to everybody else. The determination to pursue those contrarian value, unpopular stocks is exactly the same today as when I arrived 15 years ago and I've seen it be unwavering amongst our senior investors there's certainly been pressure you know we feel pressure when we don't when there are periods when we're not delivering alpha for our clients 
but I think the you know if we come back to our ownership structure, the alignment of our the firm with our clients, and really I guess the culture that we've developed internally, which is you know very strong and single-minded on delivering medium-term outperformance. I certainly I'm not concerned that we are drifting to you know a kind of less volatile or more conservative approach. We just you know we take the old market opportunity that we see and we try to do the best that we can with a kind of longer-term horizon. And I'll say just before I, I move on to our, our last question here, that you, you do have the numbers, you put up the alpha. So the listeners shouldn't read into that, that you don't, you absolutely have put up the, the medium and long-term numbers for your clients there. It's very nice of you to say that we've put up the numbers. If we look at how we have delivered over the last, say, 10 years for clients, we would be disappointed internally that we have not done better. And, you know, we can identify some errors that we've made and we're, you know, working on correcting those. But we also feel extremely good about the, the outperformance potential of our strategies today. And we look at the divergence of opportunities, you know, both by sector and by geographic market. And we feel that the, the alpha opportunity going forward is, is really quite favorable. And so if we've been able to weather the last 10 years when we feel like the trends have not been helpful for the way that we invest or active management, perhaps there are some easier times ahead for, our, for, for Orbis and for our clients. Going to move on to our, our last question today, Simon. We're out of time here almost, but I, I I want to ask, what was your first job in the industry? And if you could go back and take yourself for coffee on your first day, what key piece of advice would you offer yourself? So my first my first job in the industry was at Orbis. I joined having been a corporate lawyer previously, and I joined in two thousand and eight when the world was falling apart for financial markets. And so it was a as someone new to the industry, it was a wonderful learning opportunity and. You know, a lot happened in a couple of years then. So that was pretty both interesting and exciting. I think if I could take myself out for coffee and give myself a piece of advice, it would be to don't, not to be afraid of being contrarian and to, when I form an independent view, be uh, look for a lot of evidence against that, uh, which was separate to just prevailing sentiment or prevailing wisdom. It's those situations that I've been in where I've had an independent view and over time have had the confidence to back that view, have worked out well. And I can look back and see situations where I've been shaken by short-term gyrations in stock prices, by popular sentiment, perceived wisdom in the market. And, you know, there've been mistakes. And so hopefully I can learn from that. I've been speaking today with Simon Skinner, member of the UK Executive Committee and head of the global investment team for Orbis Investments. Thanks so much for chatting with me today, Simon. Thanks, Mike. It's been a pleasure. I'm Mike Wahlberg, and this has been Guiding Assets.